Welcome to this episode of Mystics and Skeptics. Now here's your host, Sybil. Hello, fellow humans. Hope you and yours are well, wherever you are. Today we have Cameron Harmon. Cameron is an eight-year veteran of the U.S. Army. He served in Afghanistan in 2011 to 2012. Um, after his military service, uh, he had a spiritual awakening that changed his life. And um, he also is a uh, podcast host of Hermit Radio. He's a philosopher, writer, and speaker, and author. Cameron, welcome to Mystics and Skeptics. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. For listeners and for myself, could you tell us a little bit more about yourself, your background, and your childhood? Yeah, definitely. So, um, you know, growing up, I had a pretty normal, a pretty normal life growing up. It's funny because, you know, I've been and I've been in a time in my life where I like I go back and I think about things now and I realize um, that they are much different when you're a child. When you're a child, your perception of what is going on is very different than when you become an adult and you have a fully functioning brain. And then you realize like not everything was as it appeared. But um, for the most part, everything was normal. <clears throat> I did not grow up in a religious household. If you were to ask my parents, they would all, they would have said uh, we're Christians, but we didn't go to church. We didn't practice. Um, I occasionally would go to church with my friends because I wanted to understand. I saw that they were doing something, but I didn't get it. And I wanted to ask questions. And even at a young age, I was always somebody who wanted to know things. I want, you know, the big questions, I, you know, I didn't understand how all of this worked. I didn't understand why we're here. What is this thing called God? Uh, you know, who's Jesus? What is this? What is all this stuff? And why is it that some people believe in it and some people don't? Now, my experiences in the regular Christian church, you know, it's not that they, it's not that it was bad. They just couldn't answer my questions. And so I felt like it was a waste of time. And uh, moving forward, getting into the military, um, there was no room, <clears throat> there was no room for religion of what I was doing, in my opinion. Hmm. Um, you know, I was an infantry person. So our job was, you know, to go find the enemy and, and destroy the enemy. Um, it just doesn't really leave a lot of room for that. And I never considered myself a religious person anyways. So it was hard to keep that it was hard to do anything with that. I kept all of that at a distance until when I was done with my military service, I thought about what that meant for me and dealing with PTSD. I got diagnosed with PTSD in 2014. When I got out of the military, I had nothing but time to think. And that is what started all of it. I was sitting in my house and I just, I had all this free time now. And I, my brain was just constantly running through questions like, why, you know, what is this? Why is this? All the classic symptoms of awakening started happening. Um, you know, the dreams, the reflection, the contemplation, the fact that I had time now to ask questions that I needed to understand is what led me to all of this. But to circle back, so I'm in this place where I'm being very reflective and I'm practicing mindfulness I start to go back to relearn about religion, but I don't start with Christianity. I start with Buddhism. And that was the single most important thing that happened to me because learning about Buddhism is what changed my life. Learning the, the four uh, noble truths and the eight noble fold path, those things <clears throat> were so important to me. I'm, I wouldn't even say that I'm a practicing Buddhist now, but just learning those things was so important to me because 
it showed me that there's a way to do good things and to be a good person that doesn't require you to believe in heaven and hell or to believe in like religious dogma. But what that did too was that kindled my passion for understanding. And then that's when I went back to go learn about the other religions. And what I noticed and what I found was something beautiful, which is that they're all the same and they're all saying the same thing. And they always have been. The only reason we don't see that is because of language barriers, cultural differences, but all the world's religions, they're all saying the same thing. They always have been. And it's up to us to decide how we want to interpret that information. But I have actually prepared some things today that I'd like to share um, at some point to kind of hopefully explain what I'm saying when I say the world's religions are related. No, um, I couldn't agree with you more. You know, I think uh, one of my mottos is different paths, same destination, right? When it comes to yes. religion and um, um, I, you know, full disclosure, I believe in the divine. There is, uh, you know, uh, God, <laughs> so, but, you yeah. know, uh, we can argue. Yeah, I don't want to get into a debate about that, but I'm just saying, you know, I think there are paths people take that you end up in the same place really. And um, it's, uh, it's, so I couldn't agree with you more in that regard. But before we, uh, I, I look forward to listening to what you put together uh, on how you view all of this, but let's go back to, you know, uh, you're an infantry, um, infantry, infantryman, right? That's pretty uh, hardcore, right? That's probably like your front, you're in front lines and you're, <laughs> um, yes. so thank you for your service, by the way. Yeah. Um, you're in Afghanistan. I'd say around 2011, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, can you just uh, unpack or describe uh, to listeners your experience in Afghanistan? Because I think that was yeah. pivotal, right, <laughs> to where you are today in, in terms of your journey. Yeah. yeah. Um, my whole military experience in general was not what I expected it to be. And I always feel a little hesitant saying that because I don't want people to get the wrong idea. Like, it's not that I regret my experiences in the military, but I also recognize that it was nothing like what I wanted it to be. And that's part of brainwashing and conditioning, right? Like, it's just the way, you know, and every culture does it, <clears throat> every country does this. But you know, if you how do you recruit a bunch of 18 year olds to go kill people, right? Like, you're, you can't just outright say that. But if you make some flashy recruiting, recruiting videos, and if it's propagandized enough, and everybody thinks it's cool. And if you have something for people to fall under a banner like 9-11, it becomes very easy to get people to volunteer their time. I mean, just look at the Ukraine-Russia situation now. How many people completely ignored Iraq and Afghanistan for the last 20 years, but now all of a sudden they wanna stand up and go do something for Ukraine? Like, that's that's really good propaganda in my opinion. But that I was a victim of that. And I went to Afghanistan and almost immediately I noticed that things didn't seem like what I expected them to be. The people in Afghanistan, um, you know, most of them, it's what you would expect. They're just defending their homes and just trying to protect what they had. For the most part, they thought that we were magical people, like all this technology and stuff we brought, they thought it was magic. They didn't understand it. They didn't know what we were doing. Um, and they didn't understand us. They just dealt with us. They knew that we were guests, that we're only going to be there for some time or we're going to leave because that's what their country has been dealing with for, you know, the last hundred years. So, but what I noticed too, is that it just, this, this painting that, you know, the army was trying to paint saying that all these people are terrorists and that they're all doing this stuff. And I didn't ever see any of that. I saw some people defending their homes and yeah, there were some bad characters, 
but for the most part, it wasn't, it just wasn't what I thought it was going to be. And it ended up being a long year of waiting, right? Like 90% of what I did in Afghanistan was just waiting around, trying to entertain ourselves out in the middle of nowhere. And then 10% was actually like combat, the things that are crazy and get out of control. And because of that experience, um, it just changed the way I thought. But also it made me angry. It made me agitated and angry and wound up, um, which is why I, I'm doing the work I do now because there's so many veterans that need help. They've got so many issues. And thankfully, I only deployed one time for one year. There's so many people I know that have deployed multiple times. So for multiple years of their adult life, they spent in a war. And that's it does irre irreversible damage, in my opinion. So um, you became angry while you were there. You were agitated, like you just said. Um, was that common among uh, others in your platoon or in your squad? Yeah, um, I would say so. Again, the thing that like one of the biggest things that I noticed was like in the military, you know, people like to think that there's this level of camaraderie, right? Like this band of brothers mentality. And maybe it was just my experience, but I didn't feel that way. I most people hated each other. Um, they were there. You know, everybody was there for different reasons, but, but not everybody was there because they were patriotic or they wanted to do something for their country a lot of people were there because they really didn't have any other choice. And that's not a good reason to be doing something as difficult and mentally challenging as what we were doing. And so <clears throat> I was with, my squad was attached to a team of special forces uh, out in the middle of the desert. We weren't on like a big base. So if any of your listeners are veterans, um, we weren't on like a FOB, a big base where there's hundreds of soldiers. We, it was literally me and 13 other people on one tiny little base, um, not even a base, like a compound in the middle of nowhere. And it was just us. And for a year, that's those are the only people that I had an interaction with. And so you kind of go stir crazy, you get bored and you get tired and you, everybody starts, it's like, it's like um, having 13 roommates and you live in a tiny, in a tiny house. Yeah, it could have been a reality TV oh my show. God. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Ugh. So, um, yeah, I think uh, I read your book, Caveman to a Philosopher, and we'll talk about your book uh, a little later, but uh, you uh, also describe how I, it seemed to me when I read it that, you know, it was a personality altering experience for you yeah. as well. When you returned to the United States, you were not the same person, clearly, and for the worse, to be <laughs> frank, it seemed like um, you treated others pretty poorly and you know uh and you found other uh channels to uh, release your frustration anger maybe energy can you just describe from your perspective i don't want to put words in your mouth <laughs> so when i got back um you know out there too all we really had was working out that was one of the things that we did on a regular basis um and while we were out there lots of the guys were doing steroids but i didn't know this at the time um until I got back. And then when we got back, I didn't really, again, I just really didn't have anything to do. And I wanted, now looking back, I realized why I did this. But in the moment, um, my, you know, one of my fellow soldiers offered me steroids. And I was like, yeah, absolutely. Like, I want to try it. I want to be bigger. I want to be more intimidating. And um, almost immediately, I put on like 50 pounds. And it was a good feeling. But now, being like a psychology student, I recognize why I did that. I was trying to protect my fragile 
ego, my fragile um, persona. And as soon as I was able to put on that weight, there was no more bullying. So I guess I probably should have prefaced that early in my army career, I got bullied a lot. And that's just normal for most like lower enlisted people. But um, I wasn't expecting that. I, I, because I was expecting this brotherhood mentality. I wasn't expecting that everybody was going to be a dick and treat each other poorly. Um, so really I had to adapt to my environment. So when I started doing steroids and I started getting bigger, um, my attitude started changing. And when people were intimidated by me, that made me feel good because then there was no, it took the target off my back and I became the person that was actively like picking on people. And I just, this is an ego problem. This is a problem of personality. And I didn't know that I was doing this. I just was feeling better, right? Like it's a temporary solution to a temporary problem. So I'm doing that, but then now I'm like getting obsessed with it and I'm like getting into bodybuilding. So I'm doing more steroids and I'm eating a lot and I'm getting bigger. Um, but the bigger I got, the bigger my persona and my, my ego got. And so I became this really terrible character, right? I mean, it's like almost out of a movie. Um, you know, I, I go into the military being a nice kid, wanting to be patriotic. And by the time I come out, I'm a raging asshole who's like constantly yelling at people and like getting in trouble, having a bad attitude. It, it wasn't a good fit. And that's why I ended up thankfully getting out of the military. But <clears throat> when I got out of the military, um, I had an identity crisis. I'm like, well, I'm no longer a soldier. So who am I? Right. And so I did the bodybuilding thing until I ripped my, my right pectoral muscle. I ripped it twice. And then I'm like, all right, well, I don't want to do that anymore. So who am I now? And then that is when that process of me becoming reflective and meditating and studying religion, that's where that came in. And then I found out we're all just pretending, right? You know, it's just your right. ego. It's just this facade that we're all doing. And when you finally run out of facades, uh, when you run out of people to pretend being, you can just be yourself. And that's a good place to be. Yeah. Um, before, okay, so in the military, you know, when you're back in the United States, I think they're, you know, you like in your words, like you said, you turn into an, a raging asshole, <laughs> so, but you did seek counseling or therapy that the military provides, right. For PTSD. Um, so, yeah. and if I read correctly, you know, there was, um, some medication involved that didn't work or you, re you refused to take it. Can you just uh, clarify that for me and listeners? Yeah. Um, I, you know, it, it started off as a really, honestly, the, the whole mental health problem in the military, it's such a terrible thing. It really sucks. Um, when I first got back, I was having headaches. <clears throat> so I got blown up by a roadside bomb towards the end of my deployment. And uh, I was pretty sure that I had had a concussion. I mean, I, I'm almost 90% positive I had a concussion because like I came back from the mission and I was like, oh, like wanting to throw up because I felt terrible and I went to sleep and I shouldn't have, and I woke up with a massive headache. It was, it was bad. Um, so more than likely I had some kind of brain, uh, traumatic brain injury from what happened, but I, I couldn't go anywhere to go get that checked out. There wasn't, I mean, I was literally in the middle of nowhere. They would have had to call for a medevac to come get me <clears throat> because of the small team that we were working with. Nobody else that was in the truck was going to get medical help. So I just ignored it. And I said, all right, I'm not going to be the only one to go get checked out. So I stayed back, but then, like I said, in the first couple of weeks of being back, I started having headaches. I, I was having issues. And when I w asked to go to get help, to go see somebody, 
my platoon sergeant said, well, don't be a bitch. You know, like everybody has problems. Everybody deals with this. You don't need to be a baby. Like, and so like he basically belittled me and made me feel bad about it. And so I never, I never did go get help. Um, eventually my headache got so bad that I did go to like the mental, mental health counseling facility, but I was mainly just going because I was hoping that like somebody could give me some kind of medication to help with my headache. It ended terribly. I ended up like threatening the people at the, the facility because they just refused to help me. They wouldn't let me like talk to anyone. They told me I had to come back. And the only way I could participate is if I came for group therapy sessions. And I'm like, I just need somebody to give me something, you know, like it shouldn't be this complicated. But finally, I ended up getting like a shot of um, God, I don't even know. They gave me some some shot of something that was like to calm down inflammation and it worked whatever they gave me it made my headache stop but <clears throat> because of how hard that process was i never attempted to go back and get help there now fast forward i moved to a different base and this is years down the road my new unit there's an another mental health place right next door to it i had an incident in my unit where i blew up and um got started just really losing my mind and um, somebody kind of pulled me to the side and they're like, listen, man, you, you need some help. Like you can't just act like this. Like you got, you got to go talk to somebody. So <clears throat> I took advantage of the place that was next door and it would seem to be a lot easier now several years down the road, it was a lot easier to go to these places and ask for help. So that was good. And I'm glad that the stigma is kind of getting better. So I go, and for two years, I'm seeing a counselor um, and she was, a, she was nice. She did her best. But the thing is, is like some of the people that are counselors for other soldiers, they were soldiers <clears throat> and probably have their own trauma and their own unresolved issues. And they're trying to help us with ours. It's just, it doesn't work. And not only that, but when you have such a small amount of people doing this work, you're talking about this hand, like maybe five counselors are dealing with hundreds of soldiers. Like how could you possibly build an intimate relationship with somebody and help them work through their problems, which is what resulted in the only thing they were really interested in doing was giving me medication. And I had always just been opposed to it. Um, I asked some friends who were going to therapy and getting this medication is because they give everybody basically the same shit. They give them just a generic cocktail of, antidepressants and mood stabilizers basically and so i asked him I'm like well how do you feel and he's like honestly man i don't feel anything ever and i was like okay i'm like well does that is that better than where you were and he's like yeah he's like i'm not angry anymore but he's also like but he said i also don't care about anything he's like i don't go to the gym anymore because i don't care about working out i can't have sex because i can't get it up and he's like, but, you know, they'll give you pills for that. If you tell them that you can't get it up, they'll just prescribe you something for that. And I'm like, dude, I don't want to do that. Like, that sounds terrible. And he's like, well, you know, it is better because at least I'm not angry and at least I'm not dealing. So to me, it just seemed like a Band-Aid. It didn't seem like a real solution. No, it's like masking the problem and not really addressing it, right? Uh, that's usually exactly. what happens with long-term medications. Um Okay, so you mentioned you go into bodybuilding after the military and you suffered an injury. And then what was that like watershed moment or what was that, you know, catalyst that drew you towards meditation or, or Buddhism, like you said? Like, did you just come across a website or was it like a random TV show? Like, what happened? What happened? Well, that's actually a really good question. Honestly, 
if I'm being honest, I feel like it was divinely guided. I, I mean, it only makes sense. I, cause to be clear, I, I feel like I didn't preface this. Like I believe in God too, but not in the same way. Like, I don't believe God is like a old white dude in the sky granting wishes. Right. I mean, like, and I feel like you're the same way. I feel like, right, right, right. you know, I mean, maybe it could be, maybe it can take that shape if it wants to, but I don't think that overall that is the whole general outlook of God. Right. And <clears throat> I do believe that everything happens for a reason. And I do think that our whole life path is directed in a certain way. I mean, if you go back and look, there's only, that's, that's the only feasible thing. It just made, there's too many coincidences. There's too many things that line up. So, and that's one of the things when I started meditating, that's one of the things that came to me. Um, but I don't, I, it's, it's weird that you asked me that because when I'm thinking about it, I actually don't know how I got started on meditating. Um, I was just really angry all the time. And I, I guess I just knew that meditation could help. And so I tried it which is really bizarre, like when I think about it, because I actually have no clue why or how I got started on that. But I just started and I never used any of the apps. I didn't like do any guided meditations. I literally just forced myself to sit down and close my eyes and kind of just allow whatever to happen. But I got really, really into it. And um, I started fasting. I started just, it was weird. It was almost like, again, like I was being guided because I was doing all these things, but not really understanding how they worked or why I was doing them. So I started fasting and meditating, started meditating for longer periods of time, like going on towards an hour at a time um, and trying to get as deep as possible. And then the catalyst for me really was one time I went so deep into meditation that I literally left my body, at least now I want to, I want to be clear about this. I also understand that what I'm about to describe could be a product of my imagination. It totally could, but I can't explain what happened. So even if you want to say it's my imagination, it still could just be my brain trying to tell me something that I needed to hear. I have no way to explain what I'm about to say, but, and I describe this story in my book, but I get into meditation and I get really deep and I literally leave my body. And next thing I know, I'm like, I see like a different version of myself. It's weird. It was like I was watching in the first person and also in the third person. And I'm in this weird palace, this thing that I can't describe. And in the middle, there is this throne. And I walk up to it and there's this blue, like Hindu God looking thing. And I walk up to it and it looks at me like it's known me my whole life. Like it's my best friend, which is again, bizarre. I don't understand that. And it starts talking to me, but not using its mouth. Like it's talking to me in my, my mind's eye. And I can't explain how that works, especially considering that this is all happening while my eyes are closed, you know, like it's like watching a movie. I've never had such a vivid experience while being conscious and awake. It's, it was very weird, but I mean, I also wasn't uncomfortable at all. It, it was honestly a very pleasant experience. So this being kisses me on the forehead and then tells me in my mind that everything's going to be okay. And that was it. And then just like that. And then I look up and the ceiling above us starts opening up and turning into this beautiful light. And then as soon as the light comes open, I wake up. But when I wake up from this experience, I was never the same again, not just because of this experience, but like, 
I had a deeper understanding of things that I had no idea of before. I started thinking about things in a different way than I'd ever done before. My mind was completely changed. And then the idea of like what an ego is, what the self is, that started becoming more relevant. I started to understand that way better than before. So take that for what you will. You, you probably could explain that experience a hundred thousand different ways. But for me, regardless of what it was, it was a turning point. I mean, you know, a lot of people have these types of, you know, similar experiences, right? That, um, and, you know, not to get too religious, but, you know, God can manifest himself in any way, in any form, in whatever right. connects and resonates with you, with this, you know, um, whatever works for you, you know, to bring you calm and balance. But, you know, when you mentioned ego, and I'd love to get your thoughts on ego, because I think ego is the greatest challenge that humans face and how to manage an ego, because it could be somebody's downfall. And if somebody is able to control it, I think it can also be a pathway to enlightenment too. But um, what are your thoughts on ego? How do you define it? What are your, share your opinion on that? Yeah, the ego is just your personality, really. I mean, if you want to summarize it, we tend to, I feel like in the you know, in spiritual terms, we might make it a little bit more complicated, but it doesn't have to be complicated. It's just your personality, right? From the moment you're born, you are a, a blank slate. But then from the moment you're born and you're being raised by your parents and you have friends and you go to school, all of that, you're absorbing all of that. And in the middle of all of that, your identity is formed, your personality, the things you like, the things you do, that all starts to take shape throughout the years of your life. The problem is, is that we don't realize that that is what that is. We think, right? We think that this is real and that our personality is real. And that is when you develop an ego. So like in my case, when I was doing the bodybuilding thing and doing all these steroids, right? I'm this big hulky dude and I'm intimidating. I'm doing that for a reason. I'm doing that because I'm trying to protect my fragile self. And I don't want people messing with me. I don't want people talking to me. That is just somebody I was pretending to be, right? So like that is an ego. Cameron, the bodybuilder was an ego, right? Just like Cameron, the soldier was an ego. Now, what happens when you remove those layers? Because you can't remove it completely, right? Like you can't remove the ego. It's like trying to remove, it's like trying to have a computer without the software. It doesn't work that way. But what you can do is become aware of it. And then when you become aware of it, which is basically, enlightenment, right? Self-realization. This is what religions are trying to tell you. Even Jesus, even Buddha, they're trying to tell you, you need to become aware of yourself. Because when you do that, you'll realize when you're being greedy, you'll realize when you're being an angry person, you'll realize when you're not being nice to other people. And more importantly, when you realize you're doing those things, you can work on them, you can change them. And that is what makes you a better person. But if you don't know that, you're not doing yourself any favors. But that is what narcissism comes from that's what psycho uh, psycho you know psycho um psychological problems like being a psychopath that is what stems from this this unawareness because somebody who does things with impunity and doesn't have empathy or compassion is because they're just turned off in their mind and they don't it's because they never learned that they don't understand what that is they don't have a reason to want to care and now you know you can always talk about how there are problems in the brain that cause this, right? Chemical imbalances. I think that that's partially true, but I don't think that that's a hundred percent the problem when we're talking about like mental disorders. 
Um, you mentioned that you um, you have an affinity towards Buddhism, right? But your experience that you described, you know, you referenced the Hindu, uh, possibly a Hindu deity. Yeah. Um, uh, and so I see a theme of Eastern religions here. Yes. <laughs> but uh, okay, so can you, um, how should I ask this? Can you, if that's accurate, great. But why Eastern religions and why, why not the Abrahamic or Western religions per se? You know, and I don't know. I think I think what happened is that I needed because I grew up with Christianity and I didn't really and just never connected with it. I think that I needed to see something else and I needed to experience the divine through another method, because what it did is it brought me back to all the other ones. Now that I've done that, I now have a greater appreciation for um, Islam and for Christianity. Because again, now I see how similar they really are, but I needed to see, it's almost like a perception thing. I was having a perception problem with Christianity and I needed to see that religion through a different lens and learning about like Zen and Buddhism and Taoism, those things helped me kind of wake up that part of me. Great, thanks. Now, so putting you on the spot, you mentioned earlier in the interview, you have some thoughts together about um, religion and spirituality. Please enlighten us. <laughs> okay. so. Um, have you heard of the gospel of thomas yes yes okay um and this is a this is an example of why i feel like the religions are connected and why even somebody like jesus has a deep esoteric knowledge that correlates with things that people in buddhism and zen are saying um now for for the viewers right like the gospel of thomas is a is a gnostic um dead sea scroll text so what that means is that it's not officially a part of the Bible. It's technically canonized, right? right. Um, but nobody has been able to disprove that it wasn't written at the same time as the Bible or that it is even not an original part of the Bible. Um, there's a lot of controversy behind it. But when you hear what the things I'm about to say, you'll probably get why it's controversial. But there's a line in here that I really think is important that I wanted to share. Uh, so I'm going to read it. And as you're listening, just really open your mind and just hear the words and try to see what that means to you. This is line three. Jesus said, if those who lead you say to you, see, the kingdom is in the sky, then the birds of the sky will precede you. If they say to you, it is in the sea, then the fish will, uh, will precede you. Rather, the kingdom is inside of you and it is outside of you. When you come to know yourselves, then you will become known. And it, you will realize that it is you who are the sons of the living father. But if you will not know yourselves, you dwell in poverty. And it is you who are that poverty. Wow. There's a who lot. Wrote that? Gu Guantanamo Buddha? Or was that? That's, yeah. I mean, that's but right. It's, um, Jesus is being quoted. So self-awareness, right? I mean, that's I don't right. know about you, but you know, I deal with a lot of people who are not very self-aware, right? And um and they're not their lives are a mess they don't know how to treat other people respectfully you know they're just because they don't know how their behavior and their actions affect others and their their soul frankly um yeah. and their family members but um so what you just read in this book of thomas are you saying that there's some correlation with eastern yeah. religions okay <clears throat> um you know and if people want to do the research there's even it, there's nothing definitive, 
but there's research that academics have done that suggests that Jesus may have even been in India, you know, because you got to think about the story of Jesus. You got this guy, you don't know really anything about his, the middle of his life. He just shows up at, when he's like 30 something years old. And then he starts doing this work, right? Beautiful and inspiring. But typically that doesn't just come. I mean, there, there's two explanations, right? Take my experience. I had one experience where I meditated and some wild stuff happened that woke me up inside, right? So maybe that's one explanation. Maybe Jesus had a similar experience. Or is it that he learned it somewhere, which is what most people get? And even me, like even that experience, that that woke something up in me, but I still had to go do the research to learn about what it meant to have an ego, what it meant to meditate and be a spiritual person, right? Um, I didn't just have this wealth of knowledge off of one time of meditating. So <clears throat> you have to ask yourself, how does somebody like Jesus become this person, right? Because if, and if you look at the similarities between Gautama and Jesus, they both meditate for 40 days, right? Buddha does it under a tree. Jesus does it out in the desert and they're fasting. They both were fasting, right? What is, you can't tell me that there's not a similarity there. I mean, that's by definition that those two stories are very similar. So is this an esoteric thing where they, the numbers have meaning and it's like some kind of symbolism and code? Because this is, that, that happens a lot in secret societies and um, lots of Gnostic stuff. Numbers have importance, right? But regardless of that, the stories are very similar and we have to take account of that. We can't just ignore the fact that their stories are very identical. That doesn't mean they're the same person, but maybe that there's some formula for whatever it is that they're doing that leads to this awakening, right? I mean, even me, I was doing the same thing. I was fasting and I was meditating. Um, maybe there's something to that. Maybe, I don't know. I can't explain it, but I do recognize the similarities. Um, and again, I think that there's something to it. I think if people were to go really to look, to research the religions, to look at the origins and look at the stories and notice the similarities, I think that they would find that for themselves as well. Yeah, I mean, uh, Abrahamic prophets and, and the Eastern religions, notable, you know, people like Gautama and all, you know, they all were, were recluse, right? They used to go up, up on mountains or into caves and fast and meditate and pray. I mean, so that's a common thread, right? How people become self-aware and um, just we try to find answers to questions and really uh, try to connect ourselves with nature or with the divine, however you want to right. view it. Um, okay, so how you have written a book, Caveman to Philosopher, what motivated you to write a book, to sit down and um, so after my experience, I mean, so that time I told you about meditating and meeting, um, this blue Hindu being, whatever it was pretty much right after that experience, I was like, wow, I, I had this weird, overwhelming sense of bliss that I was writing for a couple of months. Um, I just, nothing could bring me down. I was just in the clouds and I can't explain, I don't know why I just was, but in that experience, what I felt was that this is really good and I need to share this with people. And what I've come to find talking to many people who go through this experience, it, everybody feels this way. Um, everybody does this. And even if you look at like Plato and if you listen to Plato's um, allegory of the cave, <clears throat> which is basically an allegory for becoming enlightened, that is really what that story is. 
he talks about when you exit the cave, the first thing you want to do is you want to go back into the cave and go tell other people about the paradise that awaits them outside. You go, you want to go back in and tell them because outside in paradise, it's lonely. So you want to go back and you want to save everybody else. <clears throat> That's what everybody that ha this happens to them, this enlightenment or this awakening process, it happens to almost every single person. They, they taste this thing, this freedom that they know exists now. And the first thing that they want to do is they want to share it, right? And if you think about it, right, what was Jesus doing when he was doing his thing, right? Spreading the good word, spreading the good news. Well, what better news is that you can be free if you want to be. And that's, that's what I did. I, I made a podcast from a radio. That's what I was doing, sharing my experiences. And then I just, I always wanted to write a book, but I felt like this was a good way of accomplishing multiple tasks. Yeah. How, I mean, how, what do you say to people, to critics or detractors who say, well, you know, wait, of course, you know, if you deprive yourself of, you know, of food, you know, if you, you fast or you have sensory deprivation, don't sleep, or you're constantly meditating or whatever it is, you know, this is just a hallucination. This is an altered state of consciousness that your brain's going through. Right. And it's just hallucinogenic more or less. Uh, how do you respond to people? who say that? <clears throat> I really haven't had too many people like try to criticize me about it, which I'm grateful for. But um, on the offhand that I have, or if there were people that wanted to, you know, have a discussion about it, I, you know, there's nothing really I could say. Like, I get it. Yeah. I, I mean, trust me, like there was a lot for a long time. I never told anyone that story because I was like, it sounds fucking ludicrous. You know, I, I, I understand how it sounds, but I also accept that it is a byproduct of my mind, right? So like, yeah, very well could have all been hallucinate, like a hallucinatory experience, but everything has meaning, right? And really we give ourselves meaning. We give everything in our lives meaning. Man is the measure of all things. And I forget which philosopher said that, but I feel like that is true. And that is not to say that man is this, you know, thing. What that means is that human beings are dictating reality. We give things name, we animate things, we bring things to life with our imagination. We do, we cast spells with our words, whether we realize it or not. There is magic, there is beauty in this world that is not explainable. And my experiences there are not explainable. They're beautiful and they're worth talking about. Um, but it's kind of like psychedelics. Unless you've done it, it's really hard to try to explain to somebody what that's like. Um, everybody has to find this experience for themselves. And as a matter of fact, if you go back to medieval times, the, the search for the Holy Grail was really the quest for enlightenment. Everybody thought, you know, nowadays people think that the quest for the Grail was like this physical object, and it, but it wasn't. The grail was not a physical object. It was the path of enlightenment. That's why when you went out to go look for the grail, it was you had to do it on your own. You didn't go as a group. You didn't go together. You went on your own because it was a path of self-realization because there's power in that. You know, I'm not a medical professional by any means, right? You know, with post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, you know, my understanding is, and correct me if I'm wrong, you know, symptoms, you know, it, it, I'd say they're permanent or semi-permanent. They're long-term for sure. How are you managing now? I mean, how, what is your, um, and if listeners are suffering from PTSD, give you any advice for them? I mean, granted, you know, we're not medical professionals, but how do you manage? Um, honestly, I really don't have 
any issues with it anymore. Um, oh. After these experiences, you, and you know what? Um, I guess let me let me clarify. After the experience with meeting the Hindu being, you know, in meditation, whether it was in my mind or if it was real, whatever it was, that changed things for me because the first thing was that I left my body in a way that I didn't know that was possible. And, and I'm actually going to share another story that will help kind of connect this, right? So after coming out of that, <clears throat> I had an experience in high school where I had a near-death experience where I, I didn't realize this until after this meditation. So after this meditation, when I came out of it, <clears throat> I had to think about it for some weeks and I had to kind of digest what happened. During that, <clears throat> I realized that I left my body and that when I was in high school, it, during this near-death experience, I left my body then too. I just didn't know what it was. I thought that I had, ha like, I thought that I was unconscious and um, dreaming or something. But really what happened was I had left my body. And it just took me having this experience to kind of show me that that's what exactly what was what was happening. That experience is different than the meditation, because in this experience, I was directly injured and something was happening, and I left my body and I watched my body do something while I was outside of it. But I again, I thought it was because I was unconscious and maybe dreaming or something, but. I never thought about it again until I had this experience where I was meditating and doing something somewhere else. But then it disconnected the dots for me. It, what it meant is that you can be outside of yourself. That doesn't mean that I'm talking about like astral projection or anything like that. I don't know about any of that. But what, <clears throat> what I do think is that I think that there's more than just this life. And that's what I needed to believe in something more, to believe in something spiritual or religious. I've now seen something outside of myself that I probably wasn't supposed to see, but I did. And that, that helped me believe. But anyways, as far as the PTSD stuff goes, trauma, fear, anxiety, depression, if you look at it from Buddhist terms, those are all related to fear. Fear of three things, fear of dying, fear of pain, and fear of loss. Almost all of our problems can be wrapped up into those three things. When you no longer fear dying, kind of removes a lot of the problems. Pain is still real, but if you know that it's only temporary, then it stops kind of being a problem. If you know that none of this real, this physical existence matters that much, then losing things doesn't really have that much of a problem. So in essence, I just stop being afraid. And that's what helped with a lot of it. Now, when I have memories or when I have, you know, thinking about things that happen to me that are traumatic, they don't bother me as much anymore because I've now realized that they were serving to make me in this person that I am now. <clears throat> that's not easy and not everybody does that right away, but I, that's what worked for me. Yeah, correct me if I'm wrong, right? I mean, one of the concepts in Buddhism is that this life, you know, in this world is, you know, it is about suffering. <laughs> I mean, you know, so you can learn lessons, be able to handle it or whatever. And I think there's a reincarnation aspect too. Correct me if I'm wrong. So you learn the lessons and you won't have to learn them again. And, you know, it's just a constant evolution of, you know, perfecting your soul, I think. But that's my understanding of Buddhism. Yeah. But, um, but you're right. You know, it, it amuses me really. You know, there's so many people who are just, who who are afraid of death. It's like, to me, it's like, it's inevi inevitable, you know, and it's, it's kind of humorous almost like, yeah, we, we are all mortals. We're not looking for death, but you know, absolutely not. But you, 
you can't prevent it, you know? And so, um, but yeah, you're right. So releasing the fear of death and you said, and pain. And what's the third one? You said there's another one. Loss. Okay. Yeah. And really detaching yourself from material things too, right? Like not seeking value of yourself, but you know, with materialism per se, you know, um, Right. I don't know. I, to me, it's all about moderation and balance because we have to live in this world, the material world, you know, right. but uh, you shouldn't just. That's why, that's why I wouldn't consider myself like a full-on Buddhist. Like I like things about Buddhism, but um, it's too hard, like especially living in the West, like it's too hard. Like we have, that's what our whole society is built on is having things. But it's like you said, you know, having moderation and knowing your limits. But and again, if you're a self-aware person, it's not, you, you're not going to fall into those pitfalls as much, but that's why it's so important to become self-aware, um, to do things like meditate, to separate yourself from yourself at times. Yeah. Yeah. yeah don't go into debt because you want to, you know, have this material thing, you know, don't seek your value because you want that product back. Right. Oh. I mean, cause you're going to be miserable. Otherwise if you can't afford it. You know, <laughs> and, yeah. and if you can, that money would be better spent on people who are, uh, disadvantaged, you know, or underserved. Sure. Um, but okay, Cameron, so this is a good conversation. Now, in terms of um, if listeners want to read your book or listen to your podcast, how can they find you? How can they do that? Yeah, if they um, if they want to go to my website, all the information's there at hermitcast, hermitcast.com. Um, my information will be there. My podcast information will be there. Um, but if you just want to listen to the podcast, you can go anywhere you listen to podcasts, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and just type in hermit underscore radio and you'll see my my catch sign there it'll say hermit radio with cameron Harmon, um and all of my stuff is there for anybody to listen to um also um any if you just type in my name on those platforms you'll see all the past interviews i've done on other podcasts as well yeah i'm sorry you might have mentioned it i might have missed it um how do we find your book caveman to philosophy ah uh, yeah <clears throat> so right now um i have a limited stock left but if people want a copy of the book, all they have to do is email me at hermitradio at gmail.com and I will get you a copy. Okay, great. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure speaking to you, Cameron. Yeah, everyone. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, everyone, that was Cameron Harmon. And for our listeners, thank you for listening to Mystics and Skeptics. Never miss an episode by subscribing to the show on Amazon Music, Spotify, Patreon, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for tuning in and stay in peace, everyone.